This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity Church. Pastor Ronnie Garcia. I work here Monday through Friday. Um, so we are in our second Advent, uh, Sunday in Advent, and we have been talking about how Advent is about the hope of Jesus being like baked into our calendars, right? Our calendars represent this hope and the lights. And so last week we began and looked at how because of Advent, the peace that we long for, it, it, it can be restored. It can be renewed. And so what we're going to do this week is we're going to see how Advent is also a promise of how our future is being renewed. Uh, Advent, as, as Zach mentioned and how we tr really try to bring to your attention, is not just about remembering a past event. It is a future event, too. And it is about a certain and sure future that will be restored when that promised one who came 2,000 years ago comes again, right? So today what we're going to do is we're going to study this really important and ancient story in 1 Samuel that's actually going to help us as modern people interpret our own basis for hope in a restored future, all right? So let me just begin with a little bit of context. Our passage, and we're going to read it here in a second, it begins in a moment in Israel's history when they had no king. This is before there was ever a king in Israel. It, it was a time when the land was ruled by judges. Now, when you hear the word judges, don't think like black robes and gavels. That's not what's going on there. Judges are like these protectors, these generals for the different tribes, and they were very much regional. Now, the book of Judges, not Samuel, talks about all of, a lot of these judges. And in Judges, it was a time when Israel had no king, and things were devolving into chaos. Things were really bad. And in fact, four times in the book of Judges, there's this refrain that's rep repeated, that Israel had no king. And so the book of Samuel, it, it begins, the curtain kind of goes up on the most unlikely family. So you expect it to talk about King David, right? Because Samuel is all about like the rise and life of David. But that's not what we get. There's no David right away in chapter one. You get a guy named Elkanah, or I'm going to call him Elkanah. That's probably a little bit closer to the Hebrew. And uh, you're going to hear about Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah, who's going to be the protagonist, and another wife, Penina. Now, let me just say, the dude has two wives, and there's this pattern in the Bible, whenever a guy has two wives, multiple wives, it never works out. So it's kind of a bad deal, all right? Um, but Hannah, her name in Hebrew means favored. But the thing is, is she's born barren. Or, excuse me, she is, she, we find her barren and infertile. And Penina, the other wife, her name in Hebrew means fruitful. Uh, she has a lot of children, but she kind of has a nasty attitude, all right? So we're going to... What we do is we study this story arc of Hannah. We're going to find that she begins with bitter, bitter tears, but she ends with worship because of this certainty that she discovers in an unbreakable, restored future. 
And Hannah's certainty is going to really kind of come through in her prayer life as she prayers, prays. So the story culminates, our passage today culminates with Hannah like exploding in prayer in this song in chapter two. And, and let me just say why this matters, you guys. Well, this is why this matters. We live in a world that's pretty, it's okay. It's pretty cool to talk about prayer, actually. A connection to God, spirituality, you can talk about those things, connection to God and spirituality at the club. I mean, my social media feed is just filled with tons of non-religious people who are talking about prayer or meditation or spiritual connection. Like prayer is a pretty important topic for both religious and irreligious people. I think that people want to talk about prayer and spiritual connection. But there is a difference in, spirit, in Christian prayer. While most people pray and meditate to clear their minds, empty their minds of things, or to maybe they pray to cover up pain or to deal with anxiety, Christians do something more powerful than that. We pray and we rehearse in our prayer a certainty that God will one day Fix all the broken things in the world. Not hide them. Not cover them up. Not like, uh, like an anesthesiologist would do, right? But actually make them untrue. And one day reverse all the sad things in this world. So prayer gives us a hope in a future that will be restored. Now through this ancient account that we're going to read here in just a second, through its story arc, it's going to show us why our hope in a, in a restored future, it's not just sentimental, it's not just this cute thing we're doing at Christmas time, it is true. It is sure. Man, I want you to believe that. We're going to see that. And as we study the Bible this morning, we're going to see kind of two principles emerge in Hannah's story, uh, that, and, and really how we cultivate this hope in a restored future. And there's kind of two ways. And one, that we must let go of our present. We're going to see that. One, for point number one, how we must let go of our present. And two, how we must then lay hold of he who holds our future. So two things, letting go of the present and laying hold of him who holds the future. Now, that's going to be the outline to our sermon. So if you're a note taker, please stand with me. And let me warn you guys, this is a very long passage. Stay with it. We're reading the very words of God. This is a long passage. So let's read beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to pro provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but give to your servant a son, then I will give to him to, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as, worth, as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they rose in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord judges the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God perseveres forever. May bless it for us. Amen. You may be seated. Now, that's quite a story, isn't it, you guys? That's quite a story. Um, if you've grown up in the church, uh, you probably are familiar with it. It is, is a story that has brought comfort to many mothers who have struggled with fertility, infertility. And, and the story really kind of shoves that in the face of the reader, doesn't it? I mean, before we know anything about Hannah, right, we know one thing, right? She has a major problem. Verse 5. The Lord had closed her womb, right? So she's barren. Now, interestingly, this is kind of a pattern in the Bible. The Lord uses the most unlikely people, people who are otherwise invisible in society. God sees them. God sees the invisible one. So, for instance, you know, back in Genesis, Sarah, Abraham's wife, infertile until she was 99 years old. Remember that? Rebecca, Isaac's wife 
barren for 25 years. Rachel, Jacob's wife, struggled to become pregnant. And these are all pictures. See, at the very, very, very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, God looks at at Adam and Eve and says, be fruitful and multiply. But that multiplying part seems kind of impossible. Like, how are you going to do that? And it's actually worse than that for Hannah, you guys. An infertile woman in Israel, uh, because God told them to multiply, Hannah would have felt a sense of exclusion from the purposes that God has for his people, right? She's like, God is doing something awesome and something big, and I have no part in it. And so Hannah feels that exclusion, and it, and it comes with a social stigma, too. It was humiliating. It would have been humiliating in that context, and let me explain to you why. In that culture, a barren woman was considered dead weight, right? Economically, she's useless because you needed kind of like a whole litter of kids to help with the labor force, right? This is an agrarian culture. In a world where there's no pension or 401k plan, your children are your retirement plan. And mortality rates are extremely high, so you really need about nine or ten children so you can maybe have three or four that make it to adulthood, right? And societally speaking, the fruitful women who had a lot of babies, they were the heroes in Israel. Why? Because they could have sons who go and participate in the militia, man. They, they fill up the army. They're the heroes of the culture. And she feels it. She feels invisible. Now, her husband, Elkanah, he's trying to be nice, right? And so in verse 8, he looks at her and says, why do you weep? Am I not worth more than 10 sons to you? He's kind of missing the point, right? He's kind of missing the point. You're not helping here, Elkanah. Dumb name, you know, like I could see that going like that. Uh, In fact, I wonder if everyone's missing the point. Maybe you and I are missing the point. See, listen, Hannah feels the social shame and she's weeping bitterly because she can't have children and children were the marker of her worth. And Panina her arch rival, she has the same marker of worth, except she does have kids. And so instead of weeping, what does she do? She's gloating, right? See, so the people who win at the culture game, they get arrogant and they gloat. And the people who lose at the, at the culture game, they weep and they hate themselves. And Elkanah, he's trying to be kind to Hannah, he's actually still playing the same game. He's saying, listen, you can't have kids, but you get me, right? I mean, see, other husbands, right, uh, they only value their wives if their wives have children. But look, you don't have children, and I still love you. You get me. And isn't that what Panina wants? He's not offering her love. She can have kids, but she can't have a husband who favors her, which would have been nice in that culture. See, everyone is playing the culture game, some version of the culture game, and everyone is losing. Now listen, because you're modern people, you're like, 
you might think that having kids, finding worth and having a whole litter of kids is so primitive. That's so dumb. The Old Testament's so primitive, right? Aren't you glad that our culture has evolved from such trite markers of value and worth and such superficial things? Aren't you so glad? Well, guess what? I got bad news for you. Each society has a basis to measure the value of a person. And guess what? We are no more sophisticated as modern people than they are. What culture game are we playing, you guys? Are you beautiful? Do you have a great body? Do you have money? You know, this one pastor, he says, why in our culture are we so obsessed with under-eating and overworking? <laughs> why are we under-eating and overworking? Here's your answer. It's the culture game. There's this pastor in Nashville. His name's Scott Sauls. He tells a story about this billionaire, a billionaire with a B in London who lost half of his fortune in 2008 when the economy collapsed, right? And it took him to the verge of suicide. Now think about this. I mean, if you lose half a billion dollars, you still have a wild fortune. But it wasn't about the money, was it? It wasn't about the money. It was about his marker of worth, his self-identity, and his money was the thing that was protecting him from the shame of his culture, and it's gone. I'm afraid that we are all playing the culture game, and we are no better or less superficial than that ancient culture. Now, Elkanah, he tried to offer himself as, as consolation, but he's not helpful because he's actually an enabler to the culture game, right? He's still playing the same rules. But something in the story arc changes for Hannah. Something changes for her. Now listen, Hannah didn't want to get sucked in to the vortex of her husband's offer. And in verse 9, it says that she, after he made that little comment, she left and went to Shiloh. All right. Now, Shiloh, that probably means nothing to you, but it is the place when Israel comes out of the desert where they set up the tabernacle for the first time. So it's kind of this historic location, similar to how like the temple is in Jerusalem, or the tabernacle's in Shiloh. So Hannah goes there to pray. Now, in her grief, right, she's just gushing out to God, right? She's gushing out. And uh, she's let, in that, in that gushing out, when you read it, you really see her letting go. Letting go of things that gave her identity, that were markers of her worth. Now listen, here's what I want you to understand about this. Is God sometimes withholds things that we can't live without, or we think we can't live without, but in reality, we can't actually live with them, and you just don't know it yet. Why? Because if you got them, they would shrink your soul. It would be a curse to get what you're asking for because your soul would shrink because every part of you is designed for God and nothing else. 
And so while Hannah is gushing and praying, you can actually trace and see how her motivation changes. And this is happening at a deep level. I mean, she's pouring out her soul to God, and so much so that Eli, the priest, thinks she's drunk, right? And, and the thing is, is that Israel in that time was in such a rotten place that being drunk at the temple was totally plausible. Everyone's like, yeah, it's, it's possible. She's drinking at the temple. You know, it was awful. But what is it she's saying as she prays with her whole heart as she's gushing? What does she say? Look there in verse 11. She says, oh, Lord of hosts. She says, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Do you see the change there? In other words, listen, what, what I want you to see is that she doesn't want children for their own sake, for the culture game. She wants her life to be wrapped up and enfolded into God's purposes. She's just going to give this kid right back, right? This kid's not going to work on the farm. He, he's not going to be able to take care of her because he is set apart for these priestly and prophetic purposes. In other words, even if she gets a son, she won't benefit from him. This boy is for the Lord's purposes. And she even makes a promise that no razor is going to touch his head. Now, let me tell you what that means. It's a little bit weird if you're not familiar with the Bible. It's a Nazarite vow. Nazir just means in Hebrew, like, uh, consecrate or set apart. Basically, it just means that you can't cut your hair, you can't drink alcohol. That was a big one. And you can't be around dead bodies. That's the vow there. Now, there are two other guys in the Bible that took this vow. One of them was Samson, kind of a you know, colorful character. But in the New Testament, also John the Baptist. Now, I want you to think about this with me. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, was barren. God gave her a child. She consecrated her son with a Nazarite vow. And what was his calling? To prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Samuel was born to a woman who was barren, God gave her a son, taking a Nazarite vow, who is what? Preparing the way for the first king of Israel. You see that echo? So Hannah is changing. She wants to get enfolded into God's purposes. And she, she poured her, her heart out to the Lord in prayer. And what she's doing is she's letting go of her present in her prayer. That's what's happening there. She's letting go of her present. And you know how I know that? It's, she, made, she made the request, and it, you see in the text, she, tell, she told Eli the priest, she says, look there at verse 18, she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes. In other words, let the favored one find favor. Let Hannah find Hannah, right? There's a kind of play of words right there. And then the woman went away, look what it says there, went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. That's not how it started. She wasn't eating it earlier. She was weeping bitterly, right? So that's an Old Testament way of saying she let go. She surrendered fully to God's purposes. So before she wouldn't eat, her face is smeared with tears. Now she let go of the present and she gave herself to God's purposes. She surrendered. And listen, that is told to us 
She's already getting that peace even before she got pregnant. She doesn't know that she's going to get pregnant. There's no assurance that she's going to get a baby. In fact, she hasn't even had conjugal relationships with her husband until after that. She's already peaceful, though. And already, she's letting go of the present in her prayer because she wants the Lord. That's what she wants. That's the only thing she needs in her present life. And Hannah's infertility, you guys, Hannah's infertility, it represents Israel's, the state of Israel. Israel was empty, right? It was so dark in those days. But if Hannah's infertility represents Israel, then her humility and her legacy of letting go of the present is how God's people move back into right relationship with him, back into meaningful spiritual connection with God. Our sense of certainty that God will restore the future begins with letting go of the present. Where do you need to let go? Where do you need to let go? Is your prayer life about letting go? What are the things that you need to let go so that you can wrap your life and fold your life into God's purposes? Where you say, I just want God. No more culture game. Or is your prayer life really consumed with just asking God for something you think you need in order to be happy? so that you can win the culture game. Christians pray different, you guys. And our, our connection to God through prayer is so different than how people talk about connection to God, isn't it? It's different than our social media feed. Now, letting go of the present is just half the equation. Perhaps even more important in order to have a certain and sure hope in a restored future, we must also learn to lay hold of he who holds the future, right? So, so letting go of the enticements of the present, but also laying hold of he who holds the future. So this is my second point. Um, I'll try to also conclude with this point since I'm preaching long already. All right, no one fall asleep on me. Just kidding. You can, Luke. You can, Luke. All right. Um, all right, recall with me real quick. Let's go through the details of this story. It's a big one. Hannah is the favored uh, one, but she's barren. At first, she wants a child for what it would mean in that culture. Something changes in her, and she, she wants to be wrapped up into God's purposes. Her husband offers her the wrong kind of consolation, and her, her rival, Penina, chastises her. And in that place of suffering, in that place... In that duress, Hannah lets go, and she gives up the culture game, and she gives herself to God's purposes. But here's what I'm asking. What exactly happened in her heart? Like, what happened? That, what made the domino fall? What made the ball drop? What is buried deep in Hannah's heart that made, made her do what she did? Because, well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not just willpower. She's like, I'm just spiritually strong. I'm just going to do the right thing because I'm, I'm a stronger Christian than you are. That's not what's happening. There's something else going on here. There's something about God, who he is, that made her unbreakably confident that God would restore the future. 
Her confidence was not in the details of this future restoration or what it would look like. Rather, her confidence was in God who holds the future. Y'all see that, what I'm doing there? Hannah sees in God's character a kind of perfect wisdom and power that can work out any future contingency. Now, why would I say that with this text? There's two reasons. First, when she begins her first prayer, look there in chapter 1, verse 11, she addresses the Lord of Israel as what? The Lord of hosts. Now, we call the Lord the Lord of hosts all the time. That is the first time that that title for God appears in the Bible. Hannah coined Lord of hosts. And she's saying, God, you have infinite resources at your disposal. All the heavenly armies, nothing can keep you from getting your way. And God, if you get your way, then everyone wins. Because you are wise and holy and kind. The future is absolutely certain, O Lord of hosts. And that's just the beginning, right? She gets pregnant. The child is already vowed to the Lord. She says, Lord, if you give me a child, I'm just going to give them right back. That's all I'm doing, Lord. If you give them to me, I'm giving them back. And when she gets the news that she's pregnant, what happens? She explodes with another prayer. It's like this, a song. And what she says helps us understand what she understands about God. She prays, and now listen, because this is so different than like a meditation exercise or a breathing technique. This is so different from just trying to hide anxiety, right? It, the way she prays is tied to the very character of God. She's saying, she's essentially saying all things will absolutely work for good in the future, not because I can control things, but because God can. It's in his character. And the rest of this prayer in chapter two, and you can notice it, what it is because it's indented in your Bibles, is what I'm going to call this upside down language. The Lord does the opposite of what you think he's going to do. He can reverse anything. He, he, he can make anything untrue. No matter what you think the current details in your life are pointing to, God will do the opposite. Why? Because he's gracious. She says, look there in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to shale and he raises up. Hannah knows that God can bring life from death. Why? Because she had a dead womb, and he brought life from it. Verse 7, the Lord makes the poor and the rich, and he brings low, and he exalts. Verse 8, he raises up the poor and makes them, the poor, to sit with princes. Do you see, like, the juxtaposition, this upside-down prayer? Do you see that? It's all over the prayer. Hannah is praying God's character. She is laying hold of him who holds the future. If this is true, our connection with God, our hope in God is not tied to our ability to control or predict the details of the future. In fact, often when we look at the future, we won't see anything. 
I mean, maybe we just see infertility, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because God does the opposite of what we think he should do. He's using perfect knowledge for perfect ends. And this is just a sign that he's so gracious and works so counter to our reasoning. And now we, because that's true, we're free to be humble. We're free to let go. We don't have to be grumpy. We don't have to win. Winning, we don't have to be winning. Doesn't even matter. God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. And life has a way of humbling us, painfully humbling us. Lean into it. Like, lean into it. Don't get resentful. This is the way of Jesus, you guys. Have we forgotten that the Christian life is a life patterned after Christ? There is always suffering and humiliation before exaltation. There is no resurrection unless there is a crucifixion. Do you understand what I'm saying? No one could see it, right? I mean, usually when someone hangs on a cross, that's where it ends. They're done. But God works in upside down ways. Jesus was free to be humiliated because God does the opposite of what we think he's going to do. When Jesus was in the garden, he lays hold of his father. He didn't rest in his knowledge of the future. He, he says, in fact, he says, Lord, let, the, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. And just like Hannah, Jesus himself rested in the will of his father. Why? Because he knows his father's the one who holds the future. And that's enough. That's enough. Y'all, listen. If you could just get like one ounce of what I am saying to you right now, if you could just get an ounce of what I'm saying to you today, you will truly feel a connection with God. Maybe you're a Christian, you've been walking for years, and you're just like, I don't know, I'm a Christian, I guess, and show up to church, I guess. I'm telling you, that connection with God that you want, if you could get an ounce of what I am saying to you right now, you would feel it profoundly, deeply. This is a God who doesn't just cover up or hide your anxiety, but it is a God who can be trusted in the future to make all the sad things untrue. That is the fundamental hope of the Christian faith. He's going to deal with it, reverse it. So Advent, it blesses us. It bakes into our soul the reality that our future, no matter the details of our present life, whatever they suggest, whatever, whatever you think they're pointing to, our future will be renewed. It will that connection, that trust with God comes through humility. That's what we see in Hannah. And it is more sure and more certain than your very next breath. 
Did you breathe? It's more certain than that. And I'll end right here. In the very last part, very last part of the verse in our passage, chapter 2, verse 10, Hannah prays. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the world. Okay, what that means is the Lord's going to put things to rights. He's going to fix things. It says, he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. That's quite a thing to say, isn't it? Like, Israel has no king. Like, there's no king yet, right? And yet there we have Hannah. She's barren. God gave her a son. She vowed him to the Lord, and he prepared the way for the king. And over a thousand years later, another infertile woman would be born. Elizabeth, remember, as we mentioned earlier, was barren. God gave her a son. She vowed John the Baptist to the Lord, and he prepared the way for the king. And guess what? Christmas is not just about an event 2,000 years ago. Christmas is about a king who's coming again to secure our future. And maybe your spiritual connection feels barren. But with humility, following Jesus in his humiliation, God is calling you to live a life that prepares the way for the king. Did you hear what I said? Every Christmas, and what we're going to sing right now, we say what? Let every heart prepare him room. Prepare the way of the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Restore our future. Amen.